Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Yeah, well, the Bermuda race takes off Friday, so it's definitely timely. Right. I don't know how many boats to participate, a couple hundred probably, but I've heard the weather forecast from a couple of the participants, and it looks like it'll be a quick trip, which is always welcome, I think. We're going to do oil and gas and interest rates and uh, capital markets and whatnot pretty quickly uh, today because Mike and I have a framework that we want to go over, and uh, I, I think the framework is really relevant given the way the capital markets look. But on the price of oil, there's a real possibility of supply not responding very much to price or or trying or, or you know, or the Biden administration or other assuming countries trying to encourage the OPEC country to uh, provide more supply. It's possible that <clears throat> the additional supply just isn't there. And it's a real question mark how much of the Russian supply has to be replaced to kind of stay even. Most of the statistics and market participants think that of the 10.5 million barrels a day that Russia produces, only about a million barrels a day has been shut in or lost to the market. That The rest, one way or another, is moving at pretty large discounts, like $30 a barrel, through traders to companies in India and China. That will change a bit with the new EU rules, which took a while to work out. But the new EU rules say basically European countries will not be able to take cargoes of Russian oil in by water. They will be able to continue to take cargoes in by, uh, by pipe. And I, I haven't seen any estimate that seems to have much standing that says, oh, if that happens, you know, the amount of Russian oil will have to be made up to 2 million barrels or on a million barrels a day. I, I, I don't think anyone really knows, but it certainly is not going to restore the million barrels a day that's been shut in. I mean, think of it. Some amount of the Russian oil moves by ship in the Black Sea. Well, Black Sea is a war zone, you know, so that's not going to happen. I think oil, best best way to think about oil, I think, is that it stays short, and that doesn't necessarily translate into it staying at 120. I mean, it might trade down to, you know, 10 or $15 less, but the forward curve has it three years, four years being 75. I think it's quite likely Unless something changes, a ceasefire in Ukraine or something, that 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 backwardation will just move forward. By that I mean the price for oil is now 15 or something, and it's 90 next year. Well, by the time we get to next year, it'll be more like 115 than 90, and and so the whole 
acclimation curve will just move forward. Natural gas has been pretty volatile, and the Freeport LNG facility uh, in Texas had an explosion uh, a week or two ago. And initially, the Freeport is a private company, and they use about, or they consume about 2 billion cubic feet a day to be made into LNG. Initially, they said that they'd be backing up and operating by July. Yesterday, they said that now their estimate is they'll be back by the end of the year. So natural gas was down and natural gas stocks were down yesterday. So I don't think that uh, that's any cause for concern if you own a natural gas stock. I think that was my belief is that's kind of a one-day move. And I think what is going to happen now is that you know, $2 billion a day of gas on the margin is a lot. But, you know, we've had just enormously hot weather in the southwest. And I think the increase in demand for power is going to more than offset losing to be today for the rest of the year. But something to keep an eye on. In Europe, there's a bit of a panic on articles in the paper this morning, which is basically yesterday's news, has three interesting things to keep in mind in terms of macro trends and energy. One, the Nord Stream pipeline operating, gas comes to Europe through the Nord Stream pipeline. Nord Stream 2 is not going to be commissioned. Nord Stream 1, uh, gas comes to Europe. About half of the gas coming to Europe comes through Nord Stream 1. About the other half through the Ukraine. The articles in the paper this morning that point out three things. One, the Nord Stream 1 gas has been curtailed by Russia saying that they sent three compressor engines out or some number of compressor engines out that operate on Nord, Nord Stream 1. And they were sent by Siemens to Canada to be worked on and the Canadians have grabbed them and will not let them go back to Russia. So the Russians say, based on that, Nord Stream 1 production will be, or pipeline throughput will be curtailed by up to 30%. So that's pretty worrisome. The other one, and I guess we all should have known this, that even though Russia invaded Ukraine, the amount of gas coming through Ukraine has remained pretty constant. There's a article with the head of NAFTA gas, which is the Ukrainian gas company, saying he's not sure that's going to prevail too much longer. If somehow the Ukrainians or the Russians decided to curtail gas coming from Ukraine, that would be really put uh, Europe in, in a bind. They're busily filling all the storage they can fill, but to not have that flowing gas, I mean, you, you, you can't run Europe in the winter just based on gas out of storage without the flowing gas. I mean, I, you know, it, it's just not feasible. Uh, I mean, you'll have to shut down industrial customers. It can't be done. I mean, it'd be a, you know, if, if, if this were true in the U.S., my advice would be, in, as November, December goes, if you have someplace warm, someplace where you can move to, move someplace warm, because you, you just wouldn't be able to keep the grid up. I mean, this will be significant. Now, 
It's just to show how serious this is viewed in Europe and especially in Germany. Gazprom over the years had acquired most of a lot of storage in Germany. I don't know whether it's half, but clearly more than half. And when the invasion happened, the German government took the storage and said, we will run it and direct it until the invasion's over. Uh, yesterday, the German government said, we've taken this over and we're going to hold it indefinitely. And they also appropriated 10 billion euros as a capital addition to this business, owning the storage field. The Germans are going to do everything they can to fill up those storage fields to try to get through next winter. But I mean, this is a, this is a crisis of the first order. I will, we'll see more about this. I mean, it's, it's only June and, you know, winter doesn't start till October or November or whenever it starts to get cold, but this is going to be a very difficult situation. This will pretty well ensure that LNG prices stay high. It's really kind of unfortunate that LNG prices are going to be staying high at a time when about 13 billion of LNG export capacity, two of it, the freeport, it will not operate till December. And when, when they move from saying they'll be up because, you know, fix the fire or damage or whatnot by July and all of a sudden by December, I think there's a better needed chance that, you know, that it could extend some more. They, they must have some fairly serious damage. So very news heavy, especially on natural gas and LNG week. As regards capital markets, the Fed did go up by their 75 basis points. The CPI uh, going up 8.6% announced last Friday has got the central bankers totally focused on, on, you know, the, the fact that they should have been doing this this time last year. I think they delayed because they were worried about COVID having a more lasting impact, not having the step snap back. You know, with the judgment call, with the benefit of hindsight, the judgment call was horribly wrong. I mean, they were still adding to the balance sheet in February. Benefit of hindsight, last May, June, they should have had their first increase in the Fed funds rate, and they definitely should have been starting to reduce the balance sheet. They have said in their December minutes that if they went into rundown, in other words, just didn't reinvest the interest coupons and the uh, maturity, the rate of rundown would be $95 billion a month or around uh, a trillion to a year, which would take their $9 trillion balance sheet back down to four, which is what it was before the pandemic in about four years. I think the minute the last time they said that for the first three months, which I believe are, are started now, finally, uh, they're only going to go down $30 billion a month or $35 billion a month. Incredibly short-sighted by the Fed. I'm sure that reduced stock market, some clear reduction in liquidity, back to cryptocurrency exchanges or, you know, unable to function or make redemptions. They, they have their finger on the pulse and they don't want to have, you know, capital market problems. Hence, go down 30 billion a month rather than 95. 
I personally think they're making the same mistake they made a year ago. They, they should be more decisive. And I think that reduction of the balance sheet has more impact on the capital market than the increase of 75 basis points in the Fed funds rate rather than 50. Inflation is going to change people's behavior. No question it already has. I mean, when Target says their inventories have gotten too high and they're going to mark them down to move them, uh, when Amazon announced that their second quarter results were going to be quite weak because, you know, over capacity and, and, and probably inventory, but clearly people face with them to pay more for gasoline, more for their utility bills are changing their behavior. Now, you can say, well, it's the person who has less means who is in the lower quartile or the, or the, or the, or the quartile just over the lower quartile who is going to be impacted by this. But at the same time, because of the deferred Fed move and a general concern about our political leadership, I mean, the Biden administration is cruising along at like 33% approval rating. And Trump is still there. You know, I think a way more than 50% of voters would like to see uh, Biden not agree not to run next time and Trump to agree not to run next time. I think that would be, I'll bet you, you get like 70, 80% plurality. You know, if somehow those two things could happen in favor, 80% plurality in favor. Uh, the stock market now indexes are down 25%. Anyone who thought cryptocurrencies were a place to hold funds against inflation because it was a limited amount of, of Bitcoin, a little a limited amount of Ethereum. You know, that, that theory is pretty well got to, you know, in work. I mean, they've gone down, you know, they, they, they don't look like an inflation protection at all. So as you move up through the quartiles of, you know, you know, income or ability to spend or whatnot, you're definitely going to have a wealth impact. The real GMP declined by one and a half percent in the second quarter. Almost all economists say that'll snap back a bit in the second quarter and you'll have one or two percent growth, but maybe we have a recession later. It just, you know, I'm not an economist, but it occurs to me with the impact of higher gasoline prices and utility bills, and then the impact, the wealth effect of the stock market going down. I, I don't understand how an economist, even though, no matter how plugged in, no matter how experienced, can rule out the possibility that the second quarter GNP, you know, goes down by 1% or 1.5% just because of the slowdown in discretionary spending. You know, we'll see. Uh, you know, June 30 is a couple of weeks, and then it takes them three or four weeks, three weeks or something to come up with their estimate of real GMP during the quarter. So we'll see. In terms of how to think about this, and I've now taken more than 15 minutes, so I apologize for that, but I think we won't need to cover some of the things we've just discussed uh, next week or the week after. Mike and I have come up with a framework to, to deploy all the time, but especially importantly to deploy now in this kind of thing where you don't know that 
a stock that you really want to own, like Amazon or Tesla, too, that we discussed last week. It's come down enough. The old expression is, you know, you're trying to catch a falling knife. So we're, try- we're coming up with a framework that we plan to apply to Tesla and Amazon that, that we will apply to Microsoft, NVIDIA, AMD, Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, and, and maybe further. But those are the ones we're going to concentrate on first. Now, what is the framework? The framework is if you take free cash flow, which is EBITDA less CapEx, is it the case that the business, let's, let's go back to Amazon and Tesla, who we were looking at last week, and that business compound that free cash flow, in other words, grow that cash flow 10% a year or half a decade or more? So can Amazon increases free cash flow 10% a year? Can Tesla increases free cash flow? And the second part of the framework is if you take the capitalization of a company, the number of shares times the stock price, which is the equity value, plus any debt the company has, is that equity, that, that capitalization of the current stock price, as compared to the free cash flow, give you something approaching a 5% yield. Now, why is that important? Well, if a recession, deflation, whatever, if you have enough competitive positions, which I think you can make the case Amazon has, and we think we can in time make a case with Tesla has, um, so that despite the recession, they can grow their free cash flow, not their sales, not their net income, they can grow their free cash flow 10% a year, even though you might take a position and see it trade lower because of all the capital market stuff, you should do very, very well at that position because the 5% free cash yield, whether you get as a dividend or stock repurchase or what have you, plus 10% growth gives you 15% a year. 15% a year for five years doubles your money. And so that's what you're trying to do. Now, having burned through all this time, I'm going to turn the rest of the half hour over to Mike to fill in what I may have left out or to add to this concept of a framework for dealing with this particular set of market circumstances. Over to you, Mike. Okay, so the main thing that I'd add to what you've said is that we want to find companies that have very durable businesses as well. And we spent a lot of time on this call talking about the relative quality of a particular business. Uh, I think a few weeks ago, we talked about AWS versus Azure and you know some of the advantages and the, the lead that AWS has over Azure. Now that prices have come down or are starting to get more reasonable, more of these companies that we really liked are going to tick those boxes that Hunt just talked about. So I think this is, this is fun and exciting. It's kind of like you could be depressed because the market's down, or you could spin this the other way and say, this is great because now I can potentially buy some really great companies at good prices. Absolutely. Now, question is how many companies can Mike and Jason and I get to, I think we can commit that we will get to two a week and they're now, you know, I have at least 30 weeks, 25, 30 weeks left in the year. 
So that's a tall order. We're talking about, you know, 50 companies. Now, as a practical matter, can't go through Tesla and Amazon in the Wednesday in June and then say, oh, that's, that's done. We don't need to revisit that until, you know, January 23. That won't work. So we won't get to 50 companies because we'll circle back to the extent that we see something, something has changed. Maybe the stock market, stock price has gone up, stock price has down. We notice in quarterly results that something challenges our theory that they have enough advantage of their, on their competitors and to grow their free cash flow 10% a year. I, I don't think it makes sense to cover more than two, two, two a week. And, and some will have to circle back on, but should be able to get to 20. Now, are there 20 companies out there that can grow their free cash flow 10% a year? And will they get down? If not 5% free cash yield, but in the, you know, towards that range, I think so. But I mean, that's a bit of a challenge. I mean, finding 20 is not the easiest thing in the world to do. For everyone on the phone, you know, when we started these calls or when it used to be in person at, at or South Street, Oyster Bay, you know, it was back and forth. We just found we can't do back and forth. But what we can do is, whether it's Diane's email or Mike, if you have a company, and, and this has happened, you know, more often than not between Wednesdays, that a company that you think has that potential, send it in. And we'll add it to the list. We may not get to it that Wednesday or the Wednesday after, but we definitely will get to it. Now, how, how do you do this? I mean, because you ought to be able in time to, you know, do your own, do your own analysis. Now, when you talk free cash flow, one of the things that Mike and I have been discussing is, is it last year? Is it this year? Is it run rate? And and with that, I think with the remaining five or six minutes, Mike Dab might take you through his analysis, which we did some of last Wednesday. But what free cash flow is in Tesla, if you if you just take the first quarter and you annualize what they did in the first quarter, I think you might come up with six or seven billion uh, six or seven billion of free cash flow. But Mike can lead you through how he gets to something like 20. So over to Mike to finish up the half hour. Okay. Yeah. So I'll recap uh, kind of what was in the email and this will lay the groundwork for where we're going. I will caveat this though. Tesla was actually relatively easy to break down what the future free cash flow would be. So some of the other ones we look at will be more challenging to make assumptions. So like Hunt said, if we look at the most recent quarter for Tesla, they did free cash flow of $2.2 billion. So that's 8.8 .8 on a run rate basis. So if we want to, at a 5% free cash yield, that would be a valuation of $176 billion, which would equate to, because there's about a billion shares outstanding, that would equate to about $175 a share. And today's share price is last I checked was somewhere in the 600. So we're pretty far off of that. So I wanted to look and say, 
based on the fact that they've just launched these new factories, they're going to scale up. It seems highly likely that they'll be producing more cars. What would the free cash flow be like if they were producing 2 million cars? And kind of based on their projections and some of the analyst projections, it seems like within the next 12 months, they should be doing 12 million cars a year. So I took the, started with their last year's data, right? So I figured out that they did approximately a million cars at approximately $47,000 each. So at 2 million cars, that ends up being $94 billion in automotive revenue. Gross margin on that, I made an assumption of 35% based on the factories that they have and the info that we have on the margins in each factory. No surprise, California factory is not as profitable as the Shanghai factory. And we don't know that much about the Berlin and Texas factories, but they're we targeting around 35. I think it's very likely that that could be quite a bit better. Operating expenses, we know that Elon said that they are going to freeze and maybe even shrink the salaried headcount. So we can assume that their operating expenses are going to be approximately level. So if you take all that together, you're talking about revenue of 94 billion, gross margin 35%, so it'd be 33 billion, OPEX of 8 billion would leave you with an operating profit of 25 billion. The rest of the business doesn't really make profits yet. <laughs> and that's all the solar stuff that is the grid energy, all of that stuff. So basically we're going to ignore that for this purposes. Got depreciation of 4 billion. I made an assumption and Hunt, you should weigh in on this because this is my perspective on it. When a company is growing very quickly and spending a lot of money on CapEx, I like to use depreciation as a proxy for CapEx because that allows you to only reduce the cash flow number by an amount that's equivalent to what's actually being used relative to what's an investment in the future. So long story short, the depreciation and CapEx cancel each other out. So I end up with an adjusted free cash flow of $25 billion. So that would come to a valuation of about $500 a share. So with, with those two values, the $176 a share and the 500 depending on what we can expect for future growth rate of cash flows, we might be exceptionally happy even just at 500 or near there. Yeah, I, I, I just going to close out. I agree with Mike. I think that, I think. They will probably do, I'm going to say that they'll do one factory a year. I was proud to say two factories, and then I thought the better of it. Each factory, I think, will probably do five or 600,000 vehicles, 500,000 vehicles on top of 2 million is more than 20%. There'll be a period of time of, of getting a factory running properly. But I have, I have a reasonable amount of confidence subject to continuing to look at this that will result in free cash flow from Tesla going up by at least 10% a year. The a, a CapEx equal to the depreciation rate to do one factory, I'm going to have to 
look for guidance from Mike and maybe maybe uh, we, we can revisit this next Wednesday. But $4 billion seems a little high to me to do one factory a year. So if they somehow did one and a half factories a year, well, that would be six or 700,000 vehicles on top of $2 million. I mean, 10% growth in free cash flow seems like kind of a modest objective. And without getting my input on that, I think we'll carry on next Wednesday. And in the meantime, uh, everyone stay well, stay healthy. And I know there are lots of places in the country where it's too warm, but it's never too warm in San Diego. And the Northeast has <laughs> been absolutely perfect, not only weather, but also perfect sailing weather. So if you can... Remember, this is a three-day weekend. The stock exchange is closed, so please, everyone who can, get out on the water or do whatever outside. In the meantime, we'll talk next day. Bye-bye.